millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. The huge advantage to us has been having a family who are willing to be involved in research and not just once either. We ask a lot of our participants coming in um, year after year and it's not insignificant what we're asking them to do. They'll spend between half a day and two days um, having assessments when they do come in. So that sort of commitment to the research is really unusual internationally and that's what's made a huge difference to the study from a researcher's point of view. Kia ora, and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Clerkincanon Tehenei. Today, we tell you the story of a unique New Zealand study centered around one family who have committed their time and energy to support research into dementia in the hopes of helping not just future generations of their family, but all those who are at risk of this type of dementia globally. Now, the voice you heard at the start is Dr. Bridget Ryan, a postdoctoral research fellow in the Human Brain and Neurodegenerative Diseases Research Group in the University of Auckland. This is a story that I recorded just before lockdown. I met up with Bridget and some of the researchers that are on this study one morning at the Clinical Research Centre. One of the family members was attending that day to get a range of tests done for the research study, while another came in just to chat to me about the family's involvement. Now, for reasons that will become clear, these family members do not want to be identified. So throughout this piece, I have assigned them different names and we have altered their voices. For them, this study starts with one family member, the grandmother of those I spoke to, who suffered dementia. Her brain was donated to the Neurological Foundation Brain Bank, where testing identified that there was a genetic mutation that had caused her dementia. Bridget explains. There was a suspicion in the family that it was inherited because there were a number of people going back generations who had had some sort of dementia-like condition, but it wasn't confirmed what the genetic mutation was until um, Richard Fall did that work and, and communicated that to the, um, to the family. From there, conversations between the family and researchers led to the beginning of this study, the New Zealand Genetic Frontotemporal Dementia Study. From Bridget's point of view, having a family that are committed to such a research study is immensely powerful and unique in terms of research worldwide. Having a family who are prepared to be involved in this is huge. For example, similar sort of studies that are done overseas include multiple countries, multiple different families, but most of the time they'll have only one or two people from each family. And so that means that you're then getting a lot of genetic diversity um, within the population that you're looking at. And it also means that you can't necessarily look at, a, at the effect of a single mutation in the way that we're, we're doing. From the family's point of view, they want to do all that they can. Here is one of the family members, who's the main family liaison for the study. 
I'm going to call her Gemma. It might not be that you expect something to, to be given like a magic pill at the end of this, but you know that, say, for your children or your grandchildren, you've at least worked towards something. And so I think that can give a bit of comfort. And I think that's... I, ca- I can't say for certain, but I think that's the driver for quite a few people um, who are participating from my family, is just knowing that they they feel like they're doing something about it. Yeah. Now, as Bridget explains, dementia isn't the name of a disease, rather a group of symptoms. So dementia is an umbrella term for a group of symptoms that involve a cognitive impairment that is um, significant enough to impact on your daily functioning. And dementia is caused by a number of different conditions. So the most common of those is Alzheimer's. So a lot of people think of Alzheimer's as synonymous with dementia. It's not, but it is the most common cause of dementia. And the type of dementia that this study is focused on is called frontotemporal dementia because of the areas of the brain it impacts, the frontal and temporal lobes. And then frontotemporal dementia is a, is another cause of dementia. And the main factors that differentiate it from Alzheimer's are that the initial symptom isn't memory. The initial symptom is either a change in your personality, a change in your behaviour, or in some cases it's a change in your language ability. And the other main difference from Alzheimer's is that frontotemporal dementia usually has an onset under the age of 65, um, which we define as a, as a younger onset dementia, um, which obviously has many implications as a direct result of the person's life stage that are quite a different experience to someone who develops Alzheimer's later in life. This family have genetic frontotemporal dementia. So it's caused by a gene defect that some members of the family will inherit. And it is a dominant mutation. So, Genetics 101. You inherit two copies of each gene. One from your mother and one from your father. So if this mutated gene is in one side of your family, you have a 50-50 chance of inheriting that gene. The dominant part means that getting just one copy of this gene with the mutation is enough to give you frontotemporal dementia. So if you inherit the mutated gene, you will get dementia. What this means for this family is that now that they know, they can trace generations back the movement of this mutated gene through their family and the resulting dementia. And it means that for these people I'm speaking to, whose grandmother suffered this kind of dementia, one of their parents has a 50-50 chance of also getting it. And if their parent has inherited this gene with the mutation, those I spoke to also have a 50-50 chance. We'll talk about the genetic testing of the participants in a bit. First, let's find out why they decided to take part. Oh, just to, if I can help even a little tiny bit to come up with some kind of cure or preventative or slow it down. This is the second family member I spoke to. She was in for tests while I was visiting the lab. I'm going to call her Elle. Yeah, I think just seeing my nana go through it and seeing her decline and I guess we didn't know much about it then. So it was a very, like, sudden, weird, like, ooh, what's going on with her? Like, there's some weird stuff going on. And, And then I think... Yeah, like once she went into like retirement for the dementia ward, I guess, you could see such a rapid decline. And it was just quite sad to see. And I was like, that's sad that I guess I could get it and then also my kids could get it. So yeah, just trying to, 
I guess, do anything in our power, because we know that it's in our family, we know that we might have this gene, to try and figure out a way that we can maybe stop future generations kind of having to deal with it as well? The specific focus of this research study is to identify preclinical biomarkers for frontotemporal dementia. What this means is that Bridget and her team would like to identify clear signals that the body is giving off before dementia symptoms occur. These signals, or biomarkers, would then allow doctors to identify those who are likely to get dementia or at the early pre-symptomatic stages. Now, for those who suffer from genetic frontotemporal dementia, if they decide to undergo genetic testing, they know whether they're going to get it or not. But there is a second type of frontotemporal dementia, not caused by a specific genetic mutation, referred to as sporadic. Bridget explains. So when someone has sporadic frontotemporal dementia, we can't pinpoint what the cause was. Whereas with genetic frontotemporal dementia, we can pinpoint this mutation in your genes is what has caused that. So if you have a genetic mutation that causes frontotemporal dementia, you can get a test um, at any point in your life to identify that gene mutation. Um, and because the, the genetic mutation will, will always eventually lead to dementia, you can know at any point in your life that, that you are going to develop it in the future. On the other hand, if somebody develops sporadic frontotemporal dementia, there's no way of knowing at the moment that that was, that that was going to happen. In terms of what the dementia looks like in people with sporadic disease and people with genetic disease, it's exactly the same. So if someone, the clinical picture of someone, how they present to the doctor will be exactly the same whether it's a genetic cause or or a sporadic cause. And also when we look at the brain, um, at the actual brain changes, the pathology, that looks identical as well. So that makes us think that biomarkers that we identify in um, people with a genetic cause will be generalisable to people with a sporadic cause as well, which means that in theory we may be able to identify biomarkers that could be used to identify really early stage sporadic frontotemporal dementia as well, which would then give us the opportunity to intervene at a much earlier point. There is no cure right now, but there are some trials for therapies to slow this kind of dementia that are underway. So if you could get to it early, you would give people the best chance. Also, both the researchers and family members tell me that early, correct diagnosis is super important for dementia sufferers, so that they and their families can understand what is happening. Here's Elle. But you can see how... Especially if you don't understand it, like at least with us we know that it's there, we know that we might have to deal with it so we can plan ahead and think about it at least, but for people that don't know, you can definitely see why marriages would break up, why like your kids would stop talking to you. I mean, even some of the stuff we witnessed with Nana was like bizarre, but then you obviously now know what was going on and we understand it a little bit better. Of course, Bridget doesn't know what the markers might be or whether it will be a combination of things that will be key. So they run many tests on each family member each year. The day that I was there, Elle had bloods taken and did a smell test, which is as it sounds. She had to sniff things and then identify them. 
She also did a clinical interview and neuropsychological exam. These are done to identify if people are starting to show clinical symptoms of dementia. But that was her second day of tests. On the first day, she had done personal memory and emotion recognition tests and an MRI scan with Ashley Baker, a PhD student working on this research team. What we are looking for is identifying the earliest changes in brain structure and function. So uh, we take a structural image, so a static image of the brain um, with each participant, and then we're looking being frontotemporal, the name, we're looking at the frontal lobe of the brain and uh, the temporal area, which is a bit further back. um, But the idea is that The frontal focus with this is where we see this being characterised as a more of a personality change rather than a classic memory change that we see with Alzheimer's. So we, with a frontal impairment, we're seeing things like poor attention, issues with what's called executive function, which is your ability to organise your thoughts and um, organise and strategize. And then we're looking in the fMRI, so functional magnetic resonance imaging, which is where we do this task in the scanner. We're looking at how is the brain communicating? So it's not a static image anymore that we're looking at. We're looking at the brain activity over time. So we're not only characterising what does the atrophy look like, but how is the parts of the brain communicating between itself and um, what's impaired there. And talking about her work, Ashley brings up another interesting aspect of this study. Part of my role in the study is this type of memory called autobiographical memory. So I ask a lot of questions about your personal life and personal experiences from your childhood right through. So participants have been, the family members have been so generous with the information they've shared with me. And so, yeah, you really form this, it's a partnership um, over a long period of time. These researchers are interacting with the family members every year to do these long days of tests. They get to know them. But for the study to work properly, they can't know whether the individuals they are working with are carrying the genetic mutation or not. Here is Bridget and Ashley discussing this. So from the research point of view, we need to um, determine which of our participants carry the mutation and which of them don't, but it's always um, anonymised. So we have to separate that result from the individual person um, so that we don't know any names of anybody, obviously, who are the, who carry mutations. And we also need to make sure that we're what's called blinded to the mutation status when we're doing any data analysis. So when it comes to any sort of analysis, we don't know which participants' data is is a carrier and which is not a carrier. So it's all coded, essentially. That's a very common situation for researchers that you need to be blinded, but what's not very common is that you actually interact with your participants all the time (laughs) and need to not know who is a carrier and who isn't. Um, I have concerns that if I did find out, it would be very difficult for me to act normally in front of that person when I next met them. So that's hate to be the one that ever gave it away to them when they were not wanting to know or something like that, and the ramifications of that um, are huge, so it's being really sensitive to that all the time. Yeah, so that's something that we as a research team have talked about a lot and all of the issues around that um, are quite different from the normal ethical issues that a lot of researchers are encountering, I think. It's important to think about things like this because it is each family member's own decision whether they want to know or not, 
or whether they want to be involved in the study or not. And these are things that Bridget, the research team and the family liaison Gemma think really carefully about. We all have different approaches to this. So for some individuals, they'll sort of see it as something which is going to happen in their 50s or 60s. They can have a life, they can have children before that, and it's sort of not that big of a deal until it sort of comes up. And then for others, it will weigh on their mind a lot as they go through on a day-to-day basis. And so you don't really want to have to dictate at all how people respond to that. So we have an opportunity here where we can contribute if we would like to, but by not participating doesn't necessarily mean that you care any less or that you um, don't have the same want to do something about it. It's just that it's not necessarily the method with which they want to go about it. So I personally don't know who who amongst our wider family is participating and who isn't. We sort of take a broad approach where if you want information, here it is. I'll send it out widely. Um, You can do with it what you want. Um, And if somebody wants to stop or somebody wants to start later, that's absolutely fine. But we would never want someone to feel like they have to be a part of it or that there's something... that that they should be, that they have to be. You wouldn't want anyone to feel coerced into it if they aren't comfortable. And I think the other aspect of it is that this research is only one component for our family for how we support each other with this. It's a disruptive thing because it can sort of, I know Ashley said 55, but it can sort of present earlier. So into your mid-40s and that's hitting somebody at the height of their career. They might have teenage children. Um, They might be acting in a way which impacts on their marriage at that point because there might not necessarily be the same understanding. And it's a big task to look for to the next 10 to 15 years of what that's going to look like. And so I think our family's been pretty amazing at supporting each other, whether that's through taking time off work to look after somebody or somebody needs to pop out to do something or dropping around groceries or just sort of calling around to see how everyone is. Um, There's a financial aspect to that as well as to if children are all chipping in to help out with a parent. Um, So it's not just that study is the only way in which people, I guess, participate in this for the wider family. So you can see why they want to remain anonymous. The genetic connection means that if one person finds out they have the gene, they're also identifying their parent as having it and identifying that 50-50 chance that a sibling or a child might have it. So each family member can decide themselves if they want to know. But for this kind of asymptomatic genetic testing, the steps are that every person first attends genetic counselling. This is so the person can fully understand the knock-on results and implications of them knowing whether they have this mutation in their gene or not. Elle thinks she would like to know, because, as she says, she's a planner. Like, I have started that process, so I'm waiting for the genetic testing in Wellington. But again, once I go through that counselling, my mind might change, but I think... Yeah, for me and for my family, I think it would be nice to know so I can almost, not like plan ahead, but be like, oh, well, you know, mum might go a bit crazy, not crazy, but, you know, might start forgetting who you are and, like, you can explain to your kids a lot better and, I guess, fit in what you want to in that time, if that makes sense. For me, it's always in the back of my head, so I guess 
I'm a bit more black and white than, say, like, my siblings would be. And that's perfectly fine as well. And we've discussed, like, me literally not talking about it. So I'm not going to tell them when I go down. I'm not going to tell them if I decide to find out. So that there's no ramifications for anyone else. Because it does. Like, if I've got it, then obviously my siblings could have it and my kids could have it and their kids could have it. So it's a massive umbrella that you don't really want to open up, I guess. Like, I know, obviously, you had your moments or your days where you're like, man, this sucks, like, this is so crappy. But then I think, for me, I like to, I don't know, I'm like a prepared person. I like to know what's going on and, like, what I'm doing. And so I think knowing that you can plan ahead and you can, I mean, even just stuff like choosing a dementia home, like, doing that in a sound mind, I think, is a massive thing for me. Not having somebody make those choices for me when I can't. Yeah. Gemma has decided not to get tested yet to safeguard her interactions with her family. If I was only considering myself, I would go get tested and go through that route. Um, I have family members that don't want to know and I'm not confident that I would be able to get a result and not have that influence my behaviour towards them in a way that they would not know themselves. Um, So in respect of that, I... I'm effectively waiting until everyone's sort of in a more comfortable place because it's not something I feel I have to know. It's something I think that would help me plan later in life. So it's not something I need to do immediately. Um, But I I personally see benefit in it for myself. I know that for others, because it's something which you can't necessarily change the outcome of and they feel they might fixate on it, as they get to that age where it could start to display, you start to second-guess all your behaviours. Like, when you say something a bit stupid or awkward and you always go, oh, jeez, why, why did I say that? Suddenly you're saying, is that a sign? And so on the flip side of that, if I were to find out, as an example, it would mean that one of my parents has it. And so then the behaviours that they're displaying you would start to look at that with a bias. And so if they're sort of saying, well, we'll do that in retirement... You sort of feel like you might want to be like, well, you don't have that. You might want to start looking at it now. So those sort of things I wouldn't, I don't think I'd be good at managing. And so that's why for now, I'm, I'm probably not going to get tested. It's confronting to think about. There's currently no cure for frontotemporal dementia. And so if you found out you have the defective gene, would you second guess every odd step you took or little slip of the tongue? Would you look at your parent differently? Would it negatively impact you, knowing what was coming? But then, not knowing? Does that make it worse? So I can really see the importance of each person deciding for themselves whether they want to know this information or not. And I can see why the research team have carefully debated the ethics around this study and how to keep it blinded through coding. Bridget and the team have now gathered three years of test data on the participants involved in the study – And this is the first stage at which she will start to do analysis, looking for those biomarkers. The way that we're doing it is analysing a a group of of data at a time, so what we call a data cut. So our first data cut is this first three years of data. So we're starting to analyse all that now, which is really exciting. Um, And then we will basically repeat that again in the future when we have another three or maybe five years of data. And... 
our hope is that we'll find something really interesting from this from this first set of data, um, which would be fantastic. Um, but it's difficult to know at which point we're going to be able to detect changes. So some people in the family who were participating, um, the youngest started when they were 25. So it's possible that that's a little bit too early to, to see these changes happening. So we may need to wait a little bit longer before we can actually see that. But that's why it's really important to do this um, over the long term. The hope is to keep this study going for as long as possible. And Bridget says to add further tests on balance and hearing. With so much to deal with and think about within their own family, it is remarkable to me that on top of this, many family members have committed time every year to come to this clinic and do this battery of tests in order to help in whatever way they can in the wider battle against dementia. But while Elle and Gemma are both hopeful for what the research might reveal in the future, they're also finding benefits for themselves and their family in being involved right now. Even just talking about it to friends or talking about it to, like, within our family, I think the more we talk about it, the more, I guess, all of us feel not a little bit more secure in it, but we know that we're trying to do something to at least help a little bit. And I think I've only just started recently talking to friends like outside of my like super close circle about what we're doing and what it's for. I think only, I don't know, more of a denial thing maybe for a while. Like I was like, nah, not in my family. No way, I won't get this. But I think recently, yeah, like it's been nice talking about it and nice kind of explaining in my very basic view of what is going on here. Um... Yeah, just being open and honest about it and actually, yeah, bringing it into conversation has been a massive thing and quite good. So it's just nice to, yeah, I guess be able to talk about it and to almost like prepare ourselves for what, well, I mean, we know, yeah, it's coming. We just don't know who, unfortunately, is going to... Has inherited yeah. it. Yeah. 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 So no, definitely talking about it has been massive. So by being involved in this, we've got a research team who have simplified the information and made it digestible um, to a a non-scientific audience so that we can sort of start to understand the reasons behind it. So you can always, I guess, through online research, understand the symptoms, but it's quite good to have that understanding of why these are coming about. And in sharing that information, you're starting to get more back and forth conversations so it's actually been a good unifier for the family in terms of we've reached out to cousins or extended family that we might not otherwise interact with on a day-to-day basis so in a odd way it's sort of brought the family I guess a bit closer together than we otherwise would have been so it's not necessarily the best excuse to stay in touch but it it sort of prompts you to do that Um, and then I guess more broad than that you can become focused on your family, as in um, both on the nuclear basis and the wider basis, sort of allows you to see that you're part of something which is globally affecting a range of people. It sort of sort of makes you feel less on the edge of something and more that this is something which just happens on a day-to-day basis and impacts people around the world. And we just happen to be in a city that has an association with a research group that can that can effectively help us do something with it. But you're linked in a way, which 
I guess, connects you, which is quite a nice thing. Thanks to Dr. Bridget Ryan, Ashley Baker and the wider research team involved in the New Zealand Genetic Frontotemporal Dementia Study. Huge thanks to the family members who shared their thoughts and experience with me. This episode was produced by me, Claire Kincannon. Sound engineering was by Phil Bench. Tim Watkin is the executive producer. You know, if you follow Our Changing World, those new episodes will appear on your device every week. And you won't miss a single one. You can do this for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Check out the show's website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld for some photos and access to our back catalogue of episodes. I'll put up a link to some related episodes if you want to find out more. And if you want to get in touch with us, we're on Facebook or Twitter at RNZ Science. There are lots of other great podcasts on RNZ to explore and video series. Click on the podcast and series tab on the website to have a look. In Loading Docs, which is a launch pad for New Zealand documentary shorts, I can recommend a gripping video called 50%, where Lillian Hanley struggles with the same decision as this family faces, to get tested for a genetic disease or not. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai to wiki. 